This is My Montessori Life, a podcast that holds up a unique lens to contemporary social, cultural, and political issues. Maria Montessori aimed to reform humanity by building a better human being from the start, preparing young children for a life of profound self-determination, empathy, and wisdom, everything to which an advanced civilization should aspire. The podcast's regular hosts are Barbara Isaacs, President of Montessori Europe, one of the world's leading authorities on Montessori, and David Getman, author of the teacher's textbook, Basic Montessori, and founder of the software firm My Montessori Child, which sponsors this podcast. In this third of three podcasts on the theme of nature, Barbara and David are joined by two guests. Nicola Davies, who trained as a biologist, was an original presenter on the BBC's The Really Wild Show, and is the acclaimed author of over 80 illustrated children's books on animals, habitats, ecology, and the sea. And Jonathan Preston, Conservation Manager for the Norfolk Wildlife Trust, one of a series of such posts he's held across the country over three decades, with current responsibility for wildlife conservation at 30 different sites in Norfolk. Nicola, as such a prolific children's author, what effect do you hope your books have on children and the wider community? Um, my aim is to spark children's interest in the natural world that's that's my that's my first that's my first job that's my first and probably my most important job um and from that comes everything else um a desire to know more a desire to connect um a desire to care um but that interest has to be the very first thing so i have to be very careful in how I present information to young children. Um, it, it's, it, it's, I always draw uh, the uh, simile with a, with a fire. If you're lighting a fire, as anybody who's watched uh, Bear Grylls or anybody like that will know, you can't just put anything on top of that first little flame. You have to feed that little flame with little tiny bits of dry stick and then bigger sticks and then bigger sticks and then bigger sticks. And what children have is an innate seems to me, flame of curiosity about the natural world. Now, I don't want to smother it with putting a great big log on there at first. So my job is to feed that little flame and hopefully it will get so big that then it will be able to absorb enormous great logs of information and, uh, and connection. But first of all, I have to be very, very careful how I present that information, which is why I write narrative nonfiction. Um, I tie the information together with the narrative, with the story, with the narrative voice, with uh, hopefully reasonably lyrical language so that it sounds nice in the mouth, sounds nice to speak aloud, sounds nice to share. Uh, and all of those things are, are my tools to build this little flame of, of curiosity in my readers. Well, that's very beautifully put. Thank you, Nicola. When did you first realize as a child that you had a fascination for animals and the natural world? I think your grandpa had something to do with it. I remember reading. I, I'm, sh I'm sure this is true for Jonathan too. I, I, I don't, I don't remember a time when I wasn't fascinated. Uh, I, I think it was something that was in me, and I think it's in many, many children. I was lucky because I had parents who had a nice big garden um, and gardening and being outside was important to my father, particularly my father trained as a biologist. 
um, was a frustrated farmer, really. That's what he would have loved to have done. And my grandfather, too, was a good gardener and a good countryman. They were both, I think, natural storytellers and natural teachers. So everything I saw had this voice of story in my head the whole time. In fact, my very, very first memory, one of my very first memories is is being on the same height as a tulip. So I was really small and looking into the gorgeous sort of lacquered interior of this open tulip flower and watching a bumblebee bumbling about inside it. But with that visual memory is my father's voice explaining what pollination was. So the two things that that the the enormous kind of visceral pleasure of the natural world, of looking at the natural world, of experiencing the natural world, was always with me linked to learning about it. And to uh, uh, and for me, as a child, I remember that learning, learning names, learning information, as as visceral a pleasure as the sights and sounds. It's it's. Um really important for children to have that uh, physical reality as they learn, you know, not, not to learn symbolically or, you know, just through an abstract explanation, but to have it in front of them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they learn, children learn, children learn through everything. They don't just learn through their heads. You know, of course you as Montessori uh, uh, people would, would absolutely understand this. They learn through everything. They learn with their bodies. They learn with their eyes, their ears, their senses, their souls. Um, and, and as a, a writer for children, you, you have to engage on all those levels if you can. So this was in Suffolk that you grew up. Is that that you grew up? Is that um, right? when I was yeah. my parents moved around a lot? So my very first memories are actually uh, are actually of Worcestershire. Ah. Um, uh, and my parents lived there and then moved to Suffolk. So I spent. I spent my kind of adolescence in Suffolk, mm-hmm. um, in you know various bits of Suffolk. Yeah, Jonathan, how does the Suffolk countryside, or does it differ to to Norfolk, the area you're familiar with? Um, that they're quite similar, I think. I don't. To be honest, if you're in Norfolk, you don't go to Suffolk. So, I, I I must admit, I haven't I haven't. Travel much in in, in Suffolk, so I, I don't know particularly. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. There, there is there is a. Yeah, I, you know, Norfolk is Norfolk is wilder. Yeah, it's wilder. Norfolk is wilder, but but when I was growing up in Suffolk, um, although it was an arable landscape around me, um, there were also wire. Uh, the, there were winter stubbles. Lots of birds on the winter stubbles. There were cowslips in the huge amounts of cowslips in the in the hedgerows and the skylarks i mean i it was as if the whole sky was singing on on summer days and hares i watched i watched hares in the early spring in the boxing in the in the short new grown corn um so there were there were there were lots of wildlife experiences available to me as a young person, particularly as an extremely solitary young person who was quite happy to just kind of wander about my own and look at things. Mm. Um, I think you have that in common with Jonathan, don't you? That where you were both um, happy to be on your own with nature's kind of formative experience. Yeah, sure. Yeah. 
So what was it like being at the very start of a legendary, long-running BBC television program? I mean, uh, what, what could be better, more exciting, or more enjoyable job for a recent graduate in zoology? Well, than... doing what Jonathan did in his early career, oh, right. more enjoyable. Um, it, it, there were lots of lovely things about it, and it taught me, actually taught me a lot about writing. Um, it, it taught me a lot about packaging up messages, uh, being concise, choosing carefully the information that you impart. Um, you know, part of the, uh, one of the most difficult things when you, when you have a subject you're passionate about is, is not telling your readers everything. <laughs> so you have to learn not to do that. And, and, and actually writing, because I was on the production team of The Really Wild Show as well as presenting it, uh, writing for The Really Wild Show was incredibly helpful. Um, and, um, and there were lots of lovely things about it, you know, at the time that I did it, it was very much a studio-based show. So we had animals in the studio. And, you know, whatever you feel about animals in captivity, actually being that close to, to an animal, handling it and seeing all the features of its morphology and its behaviour is just the most fantastic privilege. So those are the things that I really loved about it. But television is really boring. Really, really boring. It's so long. It takes ages. And there's loads of standing around. And I am the world's most impatient person. Um, so I got fed up with it in the end, really. I just, it just wasn't, it actually, what I just, what I realize now is that it just wasn't creative for me. Um, and uh, I was, I was a sort of child who was always making things. I was always making things, always doing things, always making something. And actually being involved at that level in a television program just didn't feel very creative. So um, I started to write when I, when, I left, uh, when I left The Really Wild Show. And although that took me a while to get going, that was much more my kind of natural habitat, really, than and television. You also, you have to have very, very sharp elbows to be in television. Yes, and I'm not very good at being competitive. <laughs> it's such a team effort, isn't it? That you, uh, yeah, the ranking of the individuals is is much fought over. So you said that you took away from the television production a kind of belief in conciseness and selectiveness about your communication. Um, yeah. In what other way do you feel it shaped your career as a writer, or um, did it? What um, about the visual side of it? I think I think it was oddly enough it, that wasn't where I learnt my visual where I got my visual sensibility. I had that visual sensibility because I'd been quite an obsessive picture maker as a as a young child and adolescent, and um, I looked at art a lot, uh, and the visual side of uh, of the natural world and of landscapes has always kind of obsessed me actually so um so I think I had that visual sensibility before I before I worked in television um so but it was the the writing the structuring the sort of compositional side of communicating that uh, that was it was incredibly helpful and actually the presenting skills are are still useful to me now, because I do a lot of work, well, when we're back into the swing of things with COVID, after COVID, um, I do a lot of work with live audiences. Um, and that was always extreme, you know, that was never difficult for me as an author, 
um, you know, I'm perfectly happy to stand up and talk to a group of 500 kids in a school hall and that's okay. You know, it's never bothered me. And that, so that, and that is incredibly, incredibly useful. If someone who is unfamiliar with your work, Nicola, wanted to start reading your books, is there a title you'd recommend would be good to start with and why and what's it about? It's really difficult because I've written, I've written fiction and nonfiction and long things and short things. And, um, but I think probably, um, the book I would say, and I haven't got an English language copy of it. I've only got a Welsh language copy, um, is a book called The Promise. Um, and it's about, um, it's about tree planting, but it's also about personal transformation and responsibility. Um, the, the, the star of the story, who is also its narrator, is a street child. Um, and I very much wanted to put the most disadvantaged child at the heart of the story. Um, it's, it actually came about because I was asked to do a picture book version of a very, very famous book, which you may know, called The Man Who Planted Pr- Trees, uh, written in France about 60 years ago by Jean Gino. Um, And it was a little book, a little story, um, written in a very reportage style, although it was fiction. And it told the story of Elsia Bouffier, who was a French peasant who just transformed the landscape around his home um, by quietly planting trees. Um, And it was a, a... an incredibly influential text at the kind of start of a modern environmental movement in the in the fifties, and um, I was asked to retell it in picture book form. And I said, I don't really want to steal somebody else's story, but I will do you a story that does the same job. So I wrote this book. It's called The Promise. It, it's about a street child who steals a bag and the bag proves to be full of acorns and in that moment when she opens the bag her life is transformed and she becomes a planter she becomes an agent of change um the child isn't named the story has a deliberately mythical quality um and the implication is that the child is just one of a long chain passing on these acorns again and again and again. Um, and it, it, it's, of all my books, it's probably the closest to my heart because it speaks to children in exactly the way I wanted it to. Um, so children, even the youngest kids, get the fact that this is, a, this is a chain and that the world will change because if there are all these people planting trees, then the world will be planted with trees. That's the first thing they get. And the other thing they get is that they get, if they are a child in a really bad situation, they get it's for them. So many, many times when I presented this book in all sorts of places or around the world, actually, a child will come up to me at the end, usually the most difficult, disadvantaged, dirty kid in the room and say, that's about me will tell me something in their life that that story has helped with. Um, so it, it, it 
has a life outside of me, entirely outside of me now, which is wonderful, which is just what you want a story to go. To, to You know, once you've written a story and it's it's you let it go, it's not yours anymore. It belongs to your readers. Is that is that little girl in the story you? Are the books your acorns? Uh, the little the little girl in the story actually is Laura. I think is the illustrator because actually she looks just like that. <laughs> you, know, just, you know, she's she's skinny and she's got dark hair. Uh-huh. So that's really Laura. No, but I meant um, what what does the book tell us about you? Oh, um. I don't know, really. I mean, I, 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 I write them. I don't really reflect on on myself. Um, it's kind of for other people who look at me from the outside to see to see how it reflects me. Mm-hmm. Although I would say that I am in my books. If you wanted to really know me, you would get to know me by reading my books. Yeah. But you, you, you're planting trees in a way with all your stories and you're, you're planting them in, in children and in society and they're growing and they're part of a well, continuum. Well, that's, that's what you hope. That's what you hope. Mm. You know, I think if my sales were a hundred times greater than they were, <laughs> than they are, then, then that would be the case. But I, 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 <clears throat> I know that as an author, you really can only do what you can do, you know. And the th- the sort of stories that I write may not have a-, a mass appeal that everybody relates to, but the people who do relate to them really relate to them. So I've been doing it now for a long time. So I now sometimes meet young people in their teens, 20s, who say, I became a biologist because of your books. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's it. That my work here is done. <laughs> that's very satisfying. What yeah, are, it is. What, it's immensely satisfying. What are some of your favorite children's books by other authors? Um, oh wow. Okay. <laughs> oh, I've got so many. <laughs> <laughs> is there one that um, jumps to mind? There are so many that jump to mind, actually, but um straight off the top of my head. Is a book. Is a book by uh, a very close friend of mine. It's actually. I know you can't show it, but it's actually a book of. It's actually a book of poems, uh, written by the writer Robert McFarland. Robert McFarland, um, and illustrated by my friend Jackie Morris. Um, this book and its predecessor, The Lost Words, have been incredibly, incredibly successful in reconnecting children and adults with the natural world. The first book, The Lost Words, concerned uh, words that had been removed from the Oxford English Dictionary because they were no longer in common use. Words for things like acorn, kingfisher, jackdaw, conquer. Now, of course, naming, as every biologist knows, is incredibly important. But naming is important for all of us because if you can't name something, you can't talk about it. You can't say, there used to be lots of acorns and now there are not so many. You can't say, there used to be an ash tree by this river, but somebody cut it down. 
you can't say those things. Mm-hmm. Um, so The Lost Words was a, a series of poems that celebrated those words and their meaning um, and their place in our hearts and our wildlife. And The Lost Spells, which is a sequel, goes on to do similar things. Um, John, Jonathan, do you agree about the nomenclature of uh, biology that you must have that a lot in conservation where, you know, once you know the names of things, you can begin to relate to them and identify them? Absolutely. I, I think from a, a sort of scientific, technical point of view, it's it's obviously important, you know, if we're, <clears throat> I don't know, engaging a contractor to go and, I don't know, copy some hazel trees, we, we need need to identify what those those trees are and for them to understand that but also i think linking back to what nicola's talking about it, it it's the story isn't it because all of our work you know my job and nicola's are very different in, in a way but in in another way they're very similar because we we're we're telling a story whether that's a story in words and pictures or whether it's a a nature reserve that people can come to and make up their own interpretation of that story it's still relying on people's imagination and yeah to 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 sort of run away with it almost and to to, from that sort of story comes the appreciation and protection and um sort of respect that we're we're trying to get people to to engender so yeah it's it, it, it yeah words are yeah you mentioned um, that this book is poetry, and you do poetry yourself, Nicola. So, I do. how do you decide which um, medium is best to say what you want to say, <laughs> prose or, or poetry? Oh, that's such a good question. I'm not sure there's a clear answer to that. Um, I write poems in lots of different ways. I mean, sometimes I. Um, I think of a big subject that I want to write lots of different things about and do a collection of poems about. So first book of nature, first book of animals, first book of the sea, those were all poetry collections that allowed me to cover lots and lots of different aspects of one big subject through uh, different short poems. Um, But sometimes... Sometimes actually a picture book is a poem, comes as a poem. Um, I I wrote, well, The the Promise came to me in one go like a poem. Uh, A book I wrote called The Day War Came, which is about a a refugee child uh, leaving her bombed city to find refuge in another part of the world. Um, That was written as a poem of protest when... um, when the 3,000 child refugees who were in France were refused entry to the UK by the UK government. Um, And so I wrote that definitely as a poem of protest. I've got a collection of poems called uh, This Is How the Change Begins about climate change. And again, those were written really uh, as as, um, lament, protest, incitement to action. Um, so poetry is a funny, I mean, poetry is my kind of default setting, really, uh, uh, but it comes in lots of different ways and from lots of different directions. Um, but with my most recent book, which is this one, uh, The Song That Sings Us, which is a big fiction, I mean, it's 105,000 words. 
That was a very definite decision to write an adventurous, exciting fantasy novel and to set it in a world that was different from our own. But when you set something in a fantasy world, it allows you to turn around and shine a very bright light on things in the real world. So the song that sings us allowed me to commentate on uh, the environmental crisis in a way that nonfiction perhaps would not allow me to. Not least because American publishers are extremely uh, censorious of anything that uh, that delivers environmental messages. I'm currently having a fight over a book, um, a picture book for children that contains very mild references to deforestation and climate change, and the American editors uh, want to take all those references out. Wow, that's shocking. Even in this day and age, yeah. this, that's going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's censorship. It's that. It's that. It's that simple. It's censorship. So even at the level of children's picture books, censorship operates, and of course must be opposed. Yeah, uh, which is terribly boring and tedious. Oh, but there you go. But I have that's these. That's upsetting fights. to hear about. Uh, and Barbara, how do you find that with your own grandchildren, and also in the nursery setting, children respond to poetry differently than to narrative? I think that children have um, natural um, appreciation of rhythm and therefore poetry presents itself in a wonderful format because it allows them to appreciate the rhythm of language. And um, poetry also allows you to play this language, which is really, really important element of language development. All three to four-year-old children like to make nonsense words, like to laugh at funny things, and um, poetry allows you to do that. So that is a very, very rich resource. It also um, allows us to sometimes spot children who don't have that sensitivity to rhyming, which could potentially be an indication of an emerging need for further attention or for further development. So, yes, I think that uh, stories in rhyme, particularly for very young children, maybe not poems per se, but stories in rhyme are very, very immediately absorbed by children and respond to them really, really well. As you can see with... uh, success of Julia Donaldson. Half of the success of her stories is the rhyme uh, that she so cleverly weaves together into her stories. Yeah, and the rhyme brings out the sounds in words, which is what's beginning their Um, understanding of literacy, isn't it? Hearing the sounds. The other other thing that that, that poems do is that they are portable. Yeah. I, I, I... I'm a huge, huge advocate of learning poetry by heart. Mm. And, um, because when it lives inside you, it takes on a different, more layered meaning and its roots spread out inside you. And for children, 
learning poems, learning poems that are just a little bit above where their reading age is now, is a fantastic way of kind of stretching their imagination and their desire for more, for more learning, for more words, uh, for more facility with language. And I also think that uh, the first poetry that the children are learning are nursery rhymes. Well, you really. would hope, wouldn't you? You would hope. Well, that that's really rather like we were saying about about passing down nature knowledge. Mm. Nursery rhymes are another thing. It only takes one generation who don't do it. So yes, one. but that in itself um, allows you to. I think that any poetry or nursery rhymes or stories, in a way, are part of the culture, and. It, sharing your culture through language with your children is as important as sharing nature. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, there, there is a, an interesting interface between language, which is like the song, it's the, the bird song of people. Um, you know, it's a, it's a way of reaching out and connecting to other members of your species and beyond. You know, as anyone who has sure. a, a cute little puppy knows, <laughs> the, the language goes beyond the species as well, and sure. it is sure. our I mean, it is our song. I mean, that's that was really the kind of underlying idea behind the song that sings us. That there is a song that joins all life, yeah, and that it is in and through all of us, and everything that's alive. So turning to another aspect of your work, you you are um, engaged with some of the world's most talented illustrators. And how does this creation happen together? Is It's like that question people always ask about composing songs, you know, what came first, the tune or the lyrics? Um, <laughs> I mean, probably it's the, in your case, it's the lyrics and followed by the tune. But um, you know, how, what is it like working with illustrators to depict um, nature? It, those relationships are as different as the personalities, the relationship uh, of the illustrators with whom I work. Um, it's um, those combinations are usually brokered by the publisher. So I finish a text. We have a discussion about what the illustration requires, uh, and then we make. Uh, a joint, usually joint decision about who the illustrator should be. Um, that's not always the case. Sometimes I write a book and I know who the illustrator is going to be from the start, or uh, on occasion I have written things and then found illustrators to work with. I have a long-term collaboration with, um, with my friend, uh, Kathy Fisher, uh, and Kathy and I, uh, it's very much a two-way street. Similarly with Petter Horacek, who's your countryman, um, Barbara, who's a wonderful Czech illustrator, been living in Worcester for many years. Um, and Petter and I, um, Petter and I work together in all sorts of ways. Sometimes I write first and then he does the pictures. But at the moment, we're, uh, we're putting together a poetry collection where I've looked at his sketchbooks and written in reaction to his work. And he's now fine tuning 
the work for the final illustrations to my poems. And and looking at it so far, I mean, it's very close to completion. I think it's going to be, you know, one of the best things either of us has ever done. It's marvellous uh, and has been a complete delight to uh, to work on. So all sorts of different ways, you know, I've, I've, I've written things specifically to bring on young illustrators who are having their first baby steps in the in the world outside college. And speaking of people starting out, I know you do writing courses as well. So if you had to pick out one thing which is the most helpful technique to aspiring authors, is it reading or something else? Yeah, but if they're aspiring authors and they're not readers, you know. <laughs> does you know, happen. That's- it's not really going to work. It's not. That's not going to apply. So you assume that, of course, that they're readers, uh, and reading teaches you. I mean, reading taught me to write. Um, but the first, if I had to say one thing, don't expect to get it right first time. Yeah. It's you persistence. Know? Yeah. You persistence. You know, ninety percent of it is persistence. Yeah. Uh, and getting through that that stage where you think. What I'm writing is rubbish. I'm rubbish. Everything is rubbish. I might as well go and stack shelves in Waitrose <laughs> or Tesco or whatever your supermarket of choice is. I, 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 um, you know, I just, and everybody goes through that. And I, I am 81 books in and I still go through it. And I don't know yeah. anybody who doesn't. Well, there are probably some authors who are very full of themselves who don't go through it. But then they write rubbish books. So there you go. <laughs> they're probably pretending anyway. But probably, I mean, <laughs> yeah, they're pro- yeah, and actually they're probably pretending. Yeah, but yeah, persistence is a, is a key to what Montessori is, is trying to help children to develop this sort of continuous um, effort applied to whatever they're doing and not giving up and having their own built-in control of error. So realizing that... It's up to them to discover, you know, when things aren't quite right and to figure out how to put it right. Um, do you agree, Barbara? Yes, <clears throat> I yes, I quite agree. I, I think that the opportunities for children to repeat activities that they are engaged with and having time to return to things um, until they get them right in not necessarily in the adult perception of getting it right, but in their own perception of getting it right, uh, really encourages this idea of um, uh, the friendship that we have with our errors because we learn so much from things that don't work very well. And if we feel confident enough in our efforts or if we feel that perseverance will find the answers, then um, the learning that comes from what we have learned from our mistakes is a very powerful tool for the future for children. One of the most difficult things about about running workshops for children, and actually also teachers, teachers are really bad, is that if you're going to do something creative, you, you... you have to be ready to fall on your face. There's no, there's no way around it. 
you have to fail. You have to fail. You have to get it wrong. You have to fail again and again and again and again and again, because otherwise you don't make anything new. Uh, and many children now, actually, particularly the highest achieving children, are so focused on the right thing that they cannot let go. And if you can't let go of being right, you're not going to be creative. Um, and, and that's a that's a really really hard message in a curriculum bound education system. That if you want children to really learn to think, and to think out of the box, to think divergently, and to think creatively, you have to let them fail multiple times, and support them in that, so they don't feel the failure as a as a failure. They feel it as an opportunity to ask questions. And that's really tricky. And this is why I'm a early years teacher rather than other teacher, because you never get it right, these little children, and they will be very quick in letting you know when you have got it wrong or when it's not to their liking. So you have to be constantly creating and thinking about meeting or collaborating together, the kind of capacity of Co-creating learning with young children is just fantastic uh, opportunity to learn about children and about yourself too. I think that's true. I think as a society, we're generally very bad at failure, very bad at and very bad at collaboration. We're we're, we're great at talking about about competition, but we're really really rubbish about. Uh, teaching kids about collaboration. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's, you know, one of the many things that needs to change is is that, actually. Going, going back to Radio 4, one of the things that annoys me about English culture is this constant celebration of the successful. Um, it's, you know, the more successful you are, the more successful you're going to become because... You know, the successful people are the ones that get thrown all the opportunities, the honors, the accolades, and then again invited to do this and invited to do that. And yeah. um, it's it's a kind of self-perpetuating winner-takes-all uh, approach to society, which is... Uh, it's a kind of laziness, actually, I think. Uh, you know, particularly, I think it's... I think it's also partly journalistic laziness. Yeah. You know, like the only children's authors that any British journalist knows are Michael Morpurgo yes. and Julia Donaldson. <laughs> they don't know any others. No. They, you did the Google and have been invented. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's always the same suspect, yeah, the, you know, what exactly, they call it, the exactly. usual thing. They usual really, suspect. really can't be asked to think about anything else. <laughs> <laughs> so your interest in wildlife, Nicholas, taking you all over the world, what are some of the most interesting places you've visited in what, oh, what natural wonders what you did you see there? Um, <laughs> uh, my favorite, oh gosh, my favorites. If you had to go back I, right I, now. I, I, I really, really love my home in Pembrokeshire and I've known Pembrokeshire all my life. It's been, you know, my parents moved around a lot. I've moved around a lot, but Pembrokeshire has been my constant. It's my kind of home, even though it's always been my home, even though I've only just started living here. Um, I think some of the most remarkable things, some of the things that have really kind of turned my heart are, I, I once went to an island called Arid, 
which is a nature reserve. It's owned by the Wildlife Trust, actually, Jonathan. I think it still is. And it's in the Seychelles. Uh, and it's one of the granitic Northern Ireland. So it's quite high in the middle, but it has a reef around it. And it is, it's like visiting Eden. It's alive with birds. And the birds take no notice of the humans at all. So you land on this beach. And um, it's a very steep storm beach. So there are people in the surf catching your boat. So you feel like, you know, you've passed over into the other world and you're being pulled from the surf by your redeeming angels. And then all around you are fairy terns and frigate birds and noddy terns and little lizards everywhere uh, and frigate birds riding, riding the thermals and all of them doing their thing, flying right past your face as if you weren't there. That's fantastic, fantastic. Wow. Um, and I, and I, I learned to scuba dive after uh, years and years of snorkeling. I learned to scuba dive about five years ago. Uh-huh. And I went to Sulawesi, which is the absolute smack bang in the middle of Indo-Pacific marine biodiversity. And I was down on one of my first dives. I was about uh, 15 metres down. So, you know, that's about four or five stories, I guess, looking up at this reef with huge, huge coral heads and huge sponges as far as I could see in either direction and swarms of fish and all the little fantastic details of tiny little things tootling around in these great big structures. And it looked like, you know, you know the really, really crazy pots that Grayson Perry makes? They're really amazing. It looked like all of Grayson Grayson. Grayson Perry's most insanely eccentric pots, all kind of stacked all around with fish and turtles swimming everywhere. It was absolutely incredible. Oh, that sounds stunning. It was, it was. It was lovely, lovely, lovely. Jonathan, um, I assume you've enjoyed traveling to um, nature spots abroad or if you've had a chance. Um, Are there any standout... um, recommendations yeah i not really abroad particularly i have traveled abroad but i because there's so so much sort of wildlife that i still don't know in the uk i I tend to sort of focus my sort of attention still in in the uk and and the the place i i my sort of heart heart is is in really and it's it sounds very similar but just a bit colder to to the seychelles is the uh, north uist in the, the Outer Hebrides. Um, <gasps> That's my favourite place on earth. I yeah. love North Uist. <laughs> and it it is it, it sounds say very similarly sort of it's although it's you know uh, off the coast of Scotland it feels like a different world. The the beaches up there are absolutely pristine, white sand, um sort of Caribbean type blue sea, um no people really on the beaches at all, loads of wildlife. Um d- Different species, of course, sort of gannets and fulmers rather than frigate birds, and but it's yeah, just just a, a different world. And and I, I've travelled up there sort of many times, and, and as soon as you get to the island, you have this sort of almost weight come off your off your shoulders. Um, particularly if you fly, you can, you can sort of fly indirectly via Glasgow, and so you, you leave Gatwick or, or Stansted, fly to Glasgow, and then do the do the hop over, and it, it's it is literally a different world and and the, the people up there and the 
the food and the, the whiskey and everything else is is just just fantastic. So I'd, I'm not sure I'd cope with living there full time because of the the really dark winters. I, I I don't particularly enjoy sort of the the, the long long nights, but from sort of April <clears throat> to October, I could probably live there quite happily. I just want to say I totally agree with it because I'm going to US again. Right. I nearly I used to go every year and I've missed a couple of years and I'm going I'm going in May and I'm so excited to go yeah. back. <clears throat> May's a really it's, good time. It's time it to is do other it's incredibly beautiful, incredible these huge, huge Atlantic beaches of white sand and behind them grasslands that are a carpet of wildflowers. And the sound of wild birds calling, calling, calling. So many things breed there, wading birds. And if you go, if you go in June, there's little parties of baby grey lag geese absolutely everywhere and yellow irises sprouting out of every ditch and seals and deer and otters. It's, it's heaven. It's absolute heaven. Yeah. No, it, it, it is. And it, it's, it's, the spelling is U I S T, and there's there's North Uist and South Uist. It's part of the the Outer Hebrides sort of chain of islands. So sort of um, Harrison Lewis at the top, and down through through the Uists, Bembecula, um, on down. Some of them are joined up by causeways, which is quite an interesting way to get around. And some you have to sort of do ferry hopping. But uh, no, I definitely recommend that. Although, plus I shouldn't recommend it because lots of people will go and then it'll get busy. Nobody, but nobody does. Because like, the other thing is, it's cold. You know, you go in midsummer and you've still got three jerseys on. And I have, I have swum, I have swum on Uist, and I'm going to do it again this year. But I, I once, I used to go with a friend, and we were on this one of our favourite beaches one day, and I was in the water because I love being in the water, and I'm very difficult to keep me out of the water. And um, and I was trying to persuade her to come in. And actually, I stayed in the water until I was probably several shades of blue. And she eventually got in, and it was lovely. And then when she got out, she said, I, I thought I was going to die of a heart attack. <laughs> Barbara, do you have memories of natural settings from your childhood in Czechoslovakia? Yes, I um as children, we used to, we lived in a mountainous region of Moravia and we used to take the bus to a hill and then walk the crest of the hill from one point to another. Um, and for me, those visits were always combined with visits to artists, actually. Uh, we had um, an uncle who lived, who was an artist who lived halfway through the walk. So we would stop there for early lunch or 11s and then would walk further on the crest of the hill to the next artist house, which was much more domesticated. And there would always be wonderful warm meal waiting for us or um, a possibility of making a fire and cooking sausages. And for me, those walks, are kind of part of what I wanted to give to my children when they were small. And uh, so living up in Oxford, but close to the Ridgeway, has meant we could also walk on the ridge of the walk with having views on both sides. For me, being outside 
needs to have a vision beyond. There needs to be a view to take my spirit from the place to somewhere else. So, yes, those those are the walks combined with the smell of the oil paint and of turps and um, the feeling of creativity that those artists studios produced combined with food and homeliness of love of the family and of friends around yes that that to me is uh, the warmest memories of my childhood gorgeous that's wonderful i sense nicola that you try to express in your writing a spiritual side to nature um so could you describe what those spiritual feelings are like and and where they take you in your work Okay. Um, When I was very little, I was six or seven, and I was on holiday in Pembrokeshire, not very far from where I'm sitting now, actually. And I was sitting at the top of a barley field on the edge of the land. So looking over this barley field in June. Now, a barley field in June is a beautiful thing because it's this beautiful green but the ends of the ears with the long uh, filaments uh, have a little tinge of red, which means that when the wind moves the barley, it accentuates the waves going through. So you see the wind. You can read the wind from the field. And I was sitting on top of this field, reading the wind and watching the sun go down over the sea and beautiful, beautiful sunsets in Pembrokeshire. And in that moment, I could feel the earth going round. And I knew that I was finite and that I would die, but then I would still be part of the world going round. Now, I I don't think those kind of profound insights are peculiar to me in any way. I think many children have them, particularly at around that age when they're getting a sense of their own mortality. Um, and that ability of children to feel those things must be honoured, even if they don't have the language to articulate for themselves, that must be honoured in the way one writes for them. So uh, that's where I, that's where I have my heart when I'm writing, and that's what's sitting at the top of my heart when I write. That awareness of children's ability to sense the bigger picture uh, and and whatever that happens to mean to them at that time in their lives. Sorry, that's an incredibly vague answer. No, no, it's wonderful. It's, It's metaphorical, but I can feel it and picture it perfectly. Yeah, I think if I'm not wrong, the Latin word uh, for wind is spiritus. All uh, right. Okay. So they are the same thing. I mean, the breath, the last breath someone breathes as it leaves their body is their spirit, literally, um, the wind. So um, yeah, what you were feeling is something people have felt for, well, forever. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Barbara, in, in what way was... Was nature a kind of spiritual or transcendent idea for Maria Montessori? I think that was the 
most powerful message she tries to share with us as educators to help children to connect with nature in order to connect with the spirit of the child, the spirit that Nicola so beautifully described in her evocation just now. Each one of us has got, there is something unique about us and our capacity to connect with nature, to connect with others, to be themselves. And for the educator to be able to share that inner spirit of the child or to sense it uh, is a huge privilege. And uh, that's really what we should try to work towards, to be able to share the spirit of the human being whom we are helping to grow and become a member of society which honors nature, which honors others, and which is prepared to make sacrifices in order for the nature to continue to thrive and give to everybody in the world, not just to our community. I think that that inclusiveness, that global vision of what needs to happen is part of that connection with the spirit. Because unless we feel others, we will not be able to achieve what needs to be done. Okay, great. Let's, uh, let's wrap up there. Um, thank you again to Barbara and David and to Nicola and Jonathan um, and we'll see you next time on My Montessori Life. <laughs>